All right, you can open your Bible to Acts 27. We're kind of getting to the end of our studies through the life of Paul. And you know what we've been doing? We've been looking at kind of a general overview of the movements of Paul uh, chronologically. And then we'll put in at one of these stories and have some devotional thoughts about what was going on in his life. So on the one hand, we're getting some history and geography and figuring out his movements. Uh, On the other hand, we're uh, just looking for the Lord to speak to us through his life. And as Gino mentioned, uh, now he is Romeward bound. Uh, He's on his way to Rome on the uh, government's dime. He's been arrested and he's been in prison, uh, actually in custody for a couple of years. And he appeals to Caesar and he's on his way uh, to Rome. I, I was thinking the other day, I don't know if those, do they still have those Holiday Inn ads where the guy says, I'm not an expert, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn. Is that Am I dating myself now? Am I, uh, am I over the hill? I, I, that's it. That was like so yesterday that, you know, I, I, I guess I need to watch more TV. Uh, but sometimes I feel that way when as a Christian I give people answers or advice, except I'd have to say I'm not an expert, but I did attend Ignite, uh, you know, or I, I do attend Calvary Chapel. And I think you know what I mean. People you're around, they need help. They're struggling at home. They're struggling at work. School isn't going very well for them. And you give them answers and advice from the Bible, but you're no expert to their way of thinking. I hope to show you that you are the expert they need. As I said, after two years of being held in protective custody, Paul had appealed his case to the highest court. That was the the, uh, right of a Roman citizen. If you felt like you weren't getting a fair trial, you could appeal to uh, Rome, appeal to Caesar, and go before the court of Nero. It wasn't a great idea to do that because uh, they didn't really like to hear your case, and you, you were kind of a guilty until proven innocent situation there. But nevertheless, Paul appealed to Rome. And he was finally Romeward bound. He's placed in the care of a Roman centurion by the name of Julius. Two companions were allowed to travel with him, uh, Dr. Luke and a guy named Aristarchus, who we, I think, first met in the city of Ephesus. Uh, He was there, one of the guys who uh, went out and faced the crowd that was going crazy over Paul's preaching in Ephesus. And we'll find in, if you read Acts 27 all the way through, other prisoners were traveling with them as well. The first leg of their trip was relatively peaceful. Uh, Then they put ashore in a place called Myra, and the centurion booked passage on an Alexandrian ship heading to Italy. It was part of a Roman grain fleet. It was getting to be difficult sailing against winds that were contrary. Nevertheless, ships were still putting out to sea. And so we pick up the story in Acts 27, verse 7. When, he had, uh, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon, passing it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, The majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix 
a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Uh, It's no surprise, really, as you're reading this, that the centurion took the advice of the ship's owner and the ship's captain over that of the Apostle Paul. They were the obvious experts. Uh, You know, this is what they did for a living. But as we'll see, they were wrong and they were disastrously wrong. And so today are many so-called and credentialed experts in their field. Many, if not most, of the things people need advice about are essentially spiritual. And that means that you are an expert if you know Jesus Christ. And so uh, there are things people need. They need their car fixed. They need their taxes done. They they need a contractor to come out and and do something at their house. And, 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 you know, you want experts in those fields. You want to check Angie's list or whatever, you know, that kind of a thing. But when people are talking about marriage and family and relationships and and most of the things that really count, those are essentially spiritual issues and they are resolved by God in the scriptures uh, where we find everything we need for life and godliness. And so even the, the, the youngest, uh, most brand new Christian has a better handle on how to give marital advice uh, than uh, a credentialed expert who's not a Christian, no matter how many years they have under their belt. And you say, well, what kind of advice could a person give who is just a brand new Christian? Get saved. And then you'll find out that your marriage will change dramatically. And and that's really the bottom line. So you become an expert, as it were. People may not listen, not initially, but in the deepest despair of their personal storm, they may need you. And that's what's going to develop in this chapter. The storm is going to come, and then they're going to turn to Paul, realizing they should have listened to him from the beginning, and now maybe it's not too late. Now, the helmsman or the captain and the ship owner and the majority advised to set sail, and off they sailed into this coming storm. Yes, these guys were experts in their field. It's what they did for a living, but that didn't mean they exercised reasonable judgment. Uh, every, time, uh, it was, every time I read this story, I think about our near-death experience in the Philippines uh, and, and the experts there. Uh, we, had, we had some end time, lag time, rest time at the end of our mission in the Philippines back in the mid-80s, and uh, the locals wanted to take us over from the coast to a place called Apu Island, supposed to be, well, it was, it was fantastic. You go out on these little banca boats, and you go around this little, uh, you know, island, and and you put to shore, and you have a barbecue, and, and there's great diving and, you know, fun and all this. And so they have these banca boats, these banca boats. Imagine a hollowed out log. Uh, It's not a log, but it looks like a hollowed out log with a pontoon on one side, a lawnmower engine, and for a drive shaft, they have like a long metal pipe and and some kind of makeshift propeller. And um, there's a bunch of us, and and some of the the American guys, they're big guys. You know, we had some big boys with us, and, and, and so we're negotiating to get over to Apu Island, and all the local guys are saying, you don't need five boats, you only need three boats. You, you don't, you, you, we can pack everybody into three boats, and so we did. And it was really cool going over there, because you're like on the, you know, the Pacific Ocean, and you're, you're just cruising along, and it's like glass, and you're like two inches above the water. 
You know, I mean, it's just like, man, this is kind of cool. You look back and the pilot's back there with a pith helmet on, you know, and he's got a little rudder thing going on and you go over to Apu Island and, and, uh, and then you're kind of sheltered on there. You spend all day on Apu Island and then you get ready to, ah, we should head back. It's three o'clock. And man, when you come around that island, it's like Hurricane Sandy. That's choppy seas, and I mean, it's it's you know, it's more like the Atlantic Ocean than the Pacific Ocean, and you're just kind of you know being tossed around, and the pontoon is coming up like this, and all of a sudden you hear you know that we've got. Uh, in fact, I think we only had two boats. That's true, we only had two, and the boats start to get separated, and you see your friends going, you know, because they they don't have enough power to drive against these waves and stuff, you know, and these guys there, and 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 the pontoons. I wasn't in the boat that almost capsized, but um, some of our guys, Pat Mundy was one of them, uh, this one boat started to go over and two of our guys jumped out and grabbed the pontoon and, and leveled it and stuff. And, and we finally made it to shore after a lot of praying and uh, I just figured the other guys were dead because they, they were like uh, 300 yards up the beach and we didn't know that. I mean, we didn't know if they made it or not. I mean, it was one of those things where some of the guys got out of the boat and kissed the sand, you know. I mean, it was crazy. All because we listened to the local guys who said, oh, it's easy. I mean, we just had too much weight in those boats uh, is what it turned out to be. And so um, my advice, if you're in the Philippines, stay on land. There's no safe boating in the Philippines unless you're in the United States Navy. And uh, other than that, everything's a disaster. So, so these guys, they're the experts, but they sail into the storm. Their motives are suspicious. The ship owner undoubtedly wanted to ensure that his cargo arrived intact and unspoiled. A lot could go wrong if you were wintering in a harbor with a grain cargo. I mean, you could get all kinds of pests or theft or anything could happen. The captain undoubtedly thought himself a capable seaman. He's not going to be upstaged by a traveler. So here you are, you're the captain, and some, some prisoner, some Christian prisoner says, I don't think we should go. Who are you? Of course we're going to go. I'm a seasoned captain. And the majority didn't like the accommodations. There were no in and outs in fair havens, apparently. But uh, actually, more likely, there was no nightlife. I mean, they're talking about spending several months there uh, and I think Fairhavens was one of those cities that was probably misnamed, you know. Uh, it's like whenever you go to a city called Riverside. So where, where exactly is the river? Yeah, there's never been a river here, you know. Or we're talking about the Santa Ana River that was dammed up 100 years ago or something like that. You, you've been to towns. like If you do any traveling, you go to town. Oh, this sounds like a nice, wonderful little town. And you think, man, let's get out of here while we still can. You know, and, and so Fairhavens was just not a very good place to spend a long period of time. Every great disaster movie reveals some ulterior motive, usually greed for putting lives at risk. It's a common plot theme because it's often true in real life. The experts have ulterior motives that affect their better judgment. They know that there's a defect, but they can't admit to it because it would, you know, whatever. And so they take off anyway, uh, and it, it brings disaster. Now, as Christians, we look upon people who don't know the Lord, and we're concerned that they don't have eternal life. And if they perish, they're going to do so eternally. Eternal life isn't just about the future. It's a quality of life here and now. And so we see people overly concerned about their livelihood, living for this world, 
Too often they experience the loss of the things that really matter in life. Uh, the same is true of non-believers who are pursuing some worldly lifestyle. In the end, it's a loss of life because it doesn't fill the emptiness in the heart that only a relationship with God through Jesus Christ can satisfy. And so we should look upon all non-believers with great concern for their loss of life, their potential loss of life, both an abundant life now and, of course, eternal life in the future. And, and you know, if you get saved later in life, you've had the thought, man, I wish I could have been saved 10 years ago. 20 years ago as a child you know I mean you 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 feel like you you're stressed to get caught up and and you look at some of the things that you did and you you know you just you shake your head in shame almost you know and um, so we look upon non-believers the guys were talking about it in the video with real love and we think man you're just missing it you're missing the abundant life of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you're, and you're going to miss out on eternal life if you're not saved. And so we're concerned about that and that's why we rise to the occasion and we see people struggling and we say, we put in our two cents and we say, hey, here's what the Bible says in your situation. I don't want to offend you, but here's what you know, I learned at church or I was reading this the other day or whatever. Now, again, they look at you like, who made you an expert in this field? And the answer is God did. Um, Acts twenty-seven thirteen. when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. You don't have to be an expert to know how fast weather conditions can change. And so this soft wind meant nothing. And so they, they had determined to go and they said, oh, look, you know, we've got soft, favorable winds. And so let's take off uh, and get going. Uh, when we share about Jesus, people tend to look at their lives and oftentimes they see a soft wind blowing rather than the approaching storm. They don't see their need. So they continue along pursuing their livelihood and lifestyle when all the while they're heading into treacherous situations that only Jesus Christ can navigate. I mean, it's true, while people do get in crises, you might know people, non-believers, who seem like their lives are better than yours in terms of, you know, nothing ever really bad happens, everything's going well for them. It's kind of a soft wind that blows through their life. Um, you and I know that that is going to change at some point. Nobody gets through their life unscathed. There's always going to be the storm that comes that they need the Lord to navigate uh, for them. Um, Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous wind arose called Euroclidon. Man, when you start giving names to stuff, it's bad. <laughs> so you got the soft wind, you know. You know, people love to talk about the weather. Don't we love to talk about the weather all day today, all day? Hey, is it still cold out there? Yeah, it's cold, man. It's cold. I like the cold, yeah. Too bad it's not a burn day. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. And the, the 90% of our talk is about the weather. I don't mind. I mean, it's, you know, it's something. But, you know, so I can see these guys the first couple of days on deck. Man, that's a nice soft wind. Yeah, it's a great soft wind. And then, this is Euroclidon. You know, it's like a disaster movie or something. Yeah, that'd be a great name for a ship, by the way, the Euroclidon. But anyway, so when the ship was caught, and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis Sands, they struck sail and 
so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Speaking of air disasters, I'll never forget the airplane that almost crashed that we were on in the Philippines. Philippines were kind of a disaster, but we had to make an emergency landing one night in Manila coming back. And I'll never forget, it was uh, 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 Bobby, uh, what's his last name? I can't remember, but he was young. He was young at the time, uh, 16 or 17-year-old kid on the trip with us. And he came, uh, I was sitting in the bulkhead seat, and he came running. He goes, look, they're dumping the fuel. They're dumping the fuel. And, and you can look out. I don't know if you know this or want to know this, but... You can look out, if, if, if they ever do a fuel dump, you know, they, they dump fuel because they don't want to land loaded because the, you explode and die. And so they have to gauge how much fuel they need and how much fuel. And so we're in a pretty serious storm, but you don't think anything of it. You figure it's going to be. And then all of a sudden we notice the, f- the fuel is coming out the end of the wing. They have these little, you know, things that, where they dump the fuel. And you're looking at this and thinking, what does this mean? You know, I mean, don't we need fuel? And then the captain comes on and he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, due to technical difficulties, uh, we will be returning to Manila. Okay, so we're going back to Manila. That's, that's okay. We're an hour out, so now we're an hour back. And then about 15 minutes before landing, the little brand new stewardess, she's like there's her first flight, it seemed like, she pulls out the seat in front of us and straps in, and I look at her, and she's weeping. <laughs> she's crying. I thought, man, this is it. This is, this is it. This is Euroclidon, you know? And, and uh, it was, you know, it's like, you know, once they start dumping fuel and crying, it's all over, you know? So, oh, man, we hit so hard. It was great. Um, we actually, to finish the story, we, we, came, we came in and then we came around the other way. I knew we were going, because I'd landed in Manila before, and we didn't land on the first pass, and we were flying maybe 10 feet above the ground, it seemed like, you know. We had to turn all the way around, and we landed the opposite way of the way planes normally land because of what, whatever was happening, and we hit the ground so hard that everything fell, uh, you know, all the compartments open. We're on like a 28-year-old former American Airlines 747 that was bought by the Filipinos and they thought hey wow you know, they have a fleet they have a fleet of three old 747s that are 20 years old but man the rates were good I mean you could fly to the Philippines for like $300 on this plane you know because it didn't have carpet anymore but uh, anyway and those were the days we had all of our luggage piled near a, can we take this sure you had boxes and luggage you didn't have to check anything you know you're like in a compartment of luggage and everything just went all over the place and the masks all fell not they didn't want them to they just fell from the force you know and people are screaming it was crazy Finally, the plane stopped, and man, the hallelujah chorus broke out. It was, cra- it was crazy stuff. One little Filipino lady, I'll never forget it, she goes, we will not fly on this plane again. We must, she goes, we must unite. We must unite. And, uh, oh, man, it was crazy. We should have known something was wrong when there was flames coming out of the f- engine, but um, what do we know? I'm not saying the average Christian is smarter than an expert in their field. I'm saying we have an eternal perspective and that it is that perspective that gives us wisdom that experts do not possess. Wisdom that experts do not possess. And many times that wisdom is simply to obey God. 
and to do what God says, no matter the cost at the time, because God wouldn't have you do something that ultimately was harmful. He wants it to be helpful and good. And so verse 20, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. A non-believer can pursue livelihood and lifestyle into their old age and seem to live a comfortable life, but sooner or later, the tempest comes and they face eternity. Maybe they have time to react. Probably they won't. People ignore God until they find themselves tossed about by life. Things start falling apart, failing. It's then that they need us and we ought to be ready with expert advice. After long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of him and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Why mention that they had not eaten for some time? Well, to us, it reminds us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. They didn't need food. They needed God to intervene. That was their greatest need, and it had always been their greatest need. And so whether you're the ship owner or the captain and for whatever reason you're trying to get to port and make your shipment and deliver your prisoner and and live your life, we don't live for those things. We live for the word of God, for a relationship with God. And so Paul says, hey, you know, you should have listened. I mean, it's not a you told, uh, I told you so kind of a thing. I mean, he's not doing that. He says, look, you should have listened to me. Listen to me now. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, man, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. And so Paul was basing his expert advice on the word of God. In his case, an angel had stood by him and gave him an immediate word from God. In ours, we have something better, that is the written word of God. Uh, And believe me, it is better. I mean, if you're Paul the Apostle, you're pretty sharp, you're pretty discerning. Uh, You can tell the difference between an angel and and a demon probably. But um, I would rather have the solid written word of God than have a being come and give me a message. Because that didn't work out too well for Joseph Smith. Uh, you know, and you just, you just don't, you know, so, I mean, sometimes it seems fantastic, like, well, why don't angels come and talk to us, and why doesn't Jesus come and appear to me? You don't really want that to happen, because there's always the chance that it ain't Jesus, and that it's not an angel, but a demon, uh, and, and so let's just stick with the word of God. Everything we need in order to advise people is contained in it, marriage advice, parenting advice, how to get along at work and at school, what kind of citizen you should be. It's all in the principles and precepts of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. I also like what the guy said tonight. Sometimes you just need to tell people the truth. And a lot of times people say, oh, what should I do? You know, I'm thinking this. And really they want you to, I think the word is mollify. I don't use that word too much, but I think it's the proper word. They want you to just mollify them and say, oh, yeah, what you're thinking, that's good thoughts. You know, you're, you're right on track. And sometimes you have to say, yeah, that's exactly the opposite of what God would have you do. You're thinking about getting a what? A divorce? Yeah, that, that's not what God wants. And, and we move on from there. And so when pe- it's the, the, you know, the hard thing is when people finally do ask you for your advice, then you tell them the truth and it kind of bites a little bit. But, uh, you know, better the truth uh, than something that's going to hurt them uh, later on. Um, 
However, we must run aground on a certain island, verse 26. I could have won all day without hearing that, you know. What did he just say? We're, we're going to run aground on one of the islands. How is that abundant life? If God really cared for them, why not just calm the storm? He didn't just calm the storm because he had a lesson to teach them because doing business with God always requires faith. And so Paul said, hey, we're going to be okay, but at this point, God says we're going to shipwreck. Uh, and, you know, sometimes, again, when people turn to the Lord, it's great, it's wonderful. I'm turning to the Lord, but their ulterior motive is, and he's going to make everything just the way I want it to be. I've resisted the Lord for years and years and years. Now I'm in a crisis, a personal crisis, a marital crisis, a health crisis. But see, I'm turning to you, Lord, and so I know you're just going to smooth this out so that I can get right back into my life. And God says, God doesn't say, but sometimes because you know, of the situation, the shipwreck happens anyway, and you find yourself floating. Um, I, I've been the bearer of bad news to lots of people over the years. And um, I was laughing. I uh, whispered to Pam. I said, I don't think I've ever been accused of being quick to compassion when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, like they were talking about. Because, you know, I'll look at somebody. I'll say, now, I need to tell you, your life could get a lot worse before it gets better. What? But I'm coming to God. Yes. And that your life could get a lot worse. It's not a punishment from God. God isn't, you know, it's not. It's just that, you know, there are consequences to our behavior and, and it, it could, I, I'm hoping I'll be praying that it gets way better, you know, you know, but, but it could get a lot worse. Your marriage could still fall apart. Uh, there's no guarantee. The only guarantee I have is that Jesus loves you. He rose from the dead for you. You have eternal life. You're on your way to heaven. Uh, but, you know, as far as how all this other stuff is going to work out, I'm not sure. Sad when a person is being tossed about in a personal storm, but they will not exercise simple faith in God to get them through it. Try to find some lifeboat in the world, some expert that tells them either they don't really need God and his word or that they need more than God and his word. Those are the two approaches that the world takes. God can't help you. This is all bogus, stupid stuff. Gene doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't even ask him. Don't ask any Christians. They, they don't have the training. Or they say, hey, God's word is great, but you need to add to God's word this other stuff that, you know, they're discovering every day that, that is, you know, a bigger and better truth and stuff. And, um, you know, the Bible says in the area of spirit, spirituality, spiritual things, the things that really matter, it contains everything we need for life and godliness. But it, it still, it sounds good to us. These people are the experts. They have education. They have degrees. They have recognition but they don't have Jesus. Or if they do, they don't really rely on him because they think they found a better way. Uh, and, and that's a problem. With compassion, you need to go on sharing with storm-tossed travelers the simplicity of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Their needs are essentially spiritual, and their greatest single need is to know the Lord or to know him better. If you know him and you are walking with him, you're the expert that God has inserted in their life. Amen?